Well, as you know, Steve's out of town, so y'all are stuck with me. Um, let's pray for him. He is on his way back to officiate for Angelina, so let's pray for him and his family as well. Um, I just got to say, it's difficult to know where to begin with a sermon. For first reason is, one, I don't preach much, and two, typically when I do, I like to ride the wave of one book before I'm out of it or move somewhere else, and three, it's Father's Day. So, you know, so much to say, so little time. Um, but I want to address fathers. I do. I think the focus sometimes, though, can be misapplied or misplaced. And with that said, we're just going to have a quick word uh, with the Lord, and then we'll, we'll get into it. So, Heavenly Father, thank you again for your grace and your mercy. God, forgive us where we fail you, especially as uh, men that are supposed to be uh, men of God. Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom and discernment. We ask that you'd give me clarity of mind and thought, and Lord, the words that I speak would be to your glory and honor, that you, Lord, would uh, station me behind the cross, that the cross would be magnified, Jesus Christ would be lifted up, and that we would see him and be drawn onto him. Lord, I pray this now in his precious name. Amen. So, I want to read you an article I came across a long time ago. It's probably three to five years, I don't really remember, but as soon as I read it, I bookmarked it. I said, I'm going to come back to that. And I finally found it the other day when Steve asked me to preach on Father's Day, and, and it's called The Dying Breed of Real Men. In fact, I loved it or liked it so much that I named my title The Dying Breed of Real Biblical Men. But the article, let me read this to you, goes like this. I once thought I was strong because I could bench press 365 pounds and felt like the Hulk after a little workout. I once thought I was strong because people looked at me and I could tell they were impressed or intimidated by my height and build. When I became a husband and father, I've come to realize this is a feeble and laughable strength. Real strength is when a husband and a father gets out of bed every day for years on end before the sun comes up, leaving his wife and children sleeping peacefully and puts in a 12-hour workday. Real strength is coming home to a colically newborn baby and a wife that's past what she can endure and taking over for the night because you can't afford to be weak and let them suffer. Real strength is making dinner, cleaning the dishes, doing a load of laundry, taking out the trash and fixing the old high mileage pickup so you can get to work the next day. Real strength is holding your baby girl in your arms as she falls asleep instantly, or baby boy, because she or he has complete faith in you. So what happened to the real men of strength and character? Every day the media tells us about how a feminist idol made it big or a homosexual cross-dresser became a hero while a soldier who gave his life for a country is a villain. It seems the American culture is more concerned with idolizing the shocking and unconventional lifestyles of Hollywood playboys and lying politicians than they are with what really happens in real life America. So again, I ask, what happened to the real men, husbands and fathers of America? Why do they seem to be ignored or non-existent? The answer is obvious. So obvious, it's shocking. The real men... The men who are building America, blazing trails, keeping the country running, underappreciated, overworked, as if it is expected and not worth taking note of, these men are too busy to give a rip. These men are too busy, working 12 hours a day while it's still dark outside, coming home and taking care of their wives and children, fixing up their old pickup truck, rocking their babies to sleep, and getting their family to church every Sunday to care about publicizing themselves, seeking public spectacle or valid validation or obscene vanity. 
So to the real American man, regardless of color, creed, or politics, and I would say any man, American or not, this is a tribute to you. You are the glue that holds your family together. You are the driving force of the economy, regardless of what all the Washington politicians' best attempts to take credit for. You're the ones making a real and lasting difference in the world because you're building a life for yourself and your family while carrying freeloaders, exploiters, and societal leeches on your backs in the form of excessive taxes. Without you selfless, devoted, hardworking men of integrity, we wouldn't have a country to call our own or the freedom to live in the pursuit of happiness. So in the unlikely chance that you get a break this week, sit back in your easy chair, have yourself a cool drink, and pat yourself on the back, because nobody else will, and that's okay, because at the end of the day, you're a real man and you don't need them to. End article. I think fathers are important. I do. I know we all had one, whether he was around or not. I'm one, I have one, you have one. However, I've noticed that society, and dare I say even the church, only addresses ever the symptoms of the problem. We never get to the root of the issue. And I have a problem with that, church. Instead of focusing on the root, we focus on symptoms. Example, if you fall and get hurt, and you have a gaping wound and you're bleeding open, you don't go to the doctor and he doesn't go, boy, we better take care of the paleness in your face. We better, we better uh, do something with your fever. You don't feel good. Hmm. Seems like you're losing a lot of blood, but that's probably not it. You have to deal with the root issue if you're going to get anything accomplished, especially when it comes to men. And I'm not picking, but ladies, help me out here. That means help, mate, not... Well, anyway. In the same way, we can talk to fathers, and we should, and we will. We'll look at a couple from the Bible, but we shouldn't only always address the symptoms of the men of man. Right? Two genders only, by the way. I'm just going to throw that out there. Everything else is a result of the root issue. You cannot fix hemorrhaging of blood by putting a band-aid on somebody's arm. You have to deal with the issue at the end or at the foundation. It's a deeper wound and it's one nobody ever wants to talk about. And perhaps you had an earthly father who did not really show you how to be a biblical man. Perhaps he showed you how to be the wrong kind of man. The biggest issue in today's world, which I've seen study after study say time and time again, is the absence of real biblical men in the family, in the workplace, in the community, and in the church. This leads to the destruction of the family, the destruction of society. Is church not a family? And it destroys the church. And we all take a front row, apathetic seat, to the destruction of society as it continues to fishtail into oblivion. Secular studies, that is, people that do studies and could care less about God, that's secular, that's what it means, they all say the same thing. They show that when real biblical men are absent in the life of the family, it suffers. Church is a family. We suffer. If you've been listening to me, you may or may not been, I don't know, I've been saying a lot of things for almost three years now, you've heard me say the same things. If we do not focus on and fix the biblical man problem, we watch the family, the church, and society die a very slow, agonizing, painful death. Don't believe it's true? Listen again to these statistics. If you don't remember I've given them to you before, great, you won't be bored. There are 19.7 million children in America 
that live in the home without a father. 19.7 million, and this is from a decade ago. One in four. And I know statistics aren't everything. Okay? And you can say, well, Josh, statistics aren't everything. I know that. But they're statistics for a reason, meaning they are more often the case. 19.7 million children. As a result, it's been shown to have a devastating effect on all the societal ills we face. All of them. Including a sleepy, apathetic church unwilling to serve where needed that continues to bleed out slowly. Children who live in the home without a father, four times greater risk of poverty, more likely to have behavioral problems. And I know behavioral problems come in various shapes and sizes. I'm doing the Paul thing. I'm anticipating the argument and giving an answer. 85% of children with behavior disorders, that can be helped. Seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen, more likely to face child abuse, two times greater risk of infant mortality, more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, more likely to go to prison, 85% of prisoners. Two times likely to suffer obesity, more likely to commit crime, 71% dropout from high school, 90% of homelessness and runaways fathers come from fatherless homes, and 63% of suicides. Church, it's an epidemic of egregious proportion. Clearly, it's screaming what the root issue is. And I know what you're thinking. Pastor Josh, it's all we hear from you, man. But obviously not without good cause. Countless studies over and over again that say the same thing. They all can't be telling the same lie. And you know personal experience. I know from personal experience this is true. Now that I hopefully have your attention, let's take a look at a few minutes in Scripture and see if we can learn anything from them. So first we're going to look at a man called Abram. And like I said, generally when I, I preach, if it's not directly from a book of the Bible, it's topical and I don't have a particular... I have various scripture references, but there's a lot, so it would be tough to get there. But we're going to look at Abram. And I'm going to give you a little background because you may or may not know, but uh, Abram heard God's call from Ur of the Chaldeans. That's where he lived. It was a town not too far from Shinar, which is where Noah's descendants built Babel because they didn't want to listen to God and disperse over the earth. In Genesis 11, scripture says that Terah, Abram's father, took the family on a journey headed to Canaan. Canaan was the promised land, right? However, it was likely that Terah actually followed Abram. Abram actually probably took the lead and his dad followed him. Abram started following after he heard God's call. Terah was named after a moon god. His dad was named after a pagan god, if that tells you anything about his upbringing. Joshua, the warrior prophet, not me, indicates that Terah, Abram's father, was fo- or while Abram was following the one true God, his father was still serving pagan gods. You know how difficult that would be? Because y'all live in a close-knit community and a close-knit family, and your dad's still serving pagan gods, and you're like, but dad, the one God. Shut up, son. He's following the true God. His father still followed false gods. And this Ur, the Chaldeans, it was a bustling city. Most of the inhabitants enjoyed an affluent lifestyle. They had two-story homes. That was a big deal back then. They had... uh, Worship pagan gods. They did all kinds of things they shouldn't do. Drove big fancy cars, had iPhones, the best kind. All kinds of material possessions. Nevertheless, Abram says, nope, God called me, I'm leaving. He took his family and they followed and they get to a place called Haran. Haran is about halfway to Canaan and this is where his father dies. Yet again, God comes to Abram and tells him to go from his home, from his family and his country and go to a place God will show him. 
God promised Abram a lasting legacy and many blessings. It's worth noting here that Sarai, if you're not familiar with the story, his wife was barren and could not give him any children. So at the ripe young age of 75, Abraham takes his family, his immediate family, some possessions, and he heads out in the wilderness, about four or 500 miles journey. And he's going to go to this land that God says he's going to show him. And the first thing I want us to look at here before moving on is that Abram followed God. I know that sounds simplistic and clichéic, but Abram followed God. He didn't know the foreign land. He didn't even have scripture to look back on and be like, Abram, you shouldn't have done that. He followed God when God told him to go. He didn't even know if his family would survive. All he knew is that God told him to do something. And he went. He followed God. He trusted God even in the midst of all the material idolatry that was going on around him. And the reason this is so significant is because Abram didn't have the Bible. He couldn't be like, well, I go to Canaan, and then I go to Egypt. It didn't work that way. The first thing he shows us is that real biblical men look to God for direction. We look to God for direction. Everybody ought to, but men, we're supposed to be the leaders. Proverbs 20, 24 says, Man's steps are ordained by God. How then can a man understand his way? The answer is in the question. Who ordains our steps? God. How can we know our way? Look to God for direction. That should be our first priority to look to God. Our first priority. It shouldn't be our high school buddy who can't seem to get his life together. We shouldn't be looking to him. We shouldn't be looking to the job we probably already spend too much time at. We shouldn't be looking at the bottom of a bottle that we've seen too many times. And we certainly shouldn't be looking at ourselves. We should be looking at God for direction in our life. Real biblical men look to God. They don't give a crap about what's going on around them. They don't let it phase them because they know who is in charge and who has told them what they're supposed to do. They keep their eyes on the prize, and this is what Abram did. He didn't even fully understand it. Do any of us ever? Like, that's what we always talk about as Christians. I just don't understand what God's doing. No, we don't. That's the point. That's why it's called faith. He looked to God who ordained his steps, and so should we. <clears throat> I'm clearing my throat both because it's dry and I was going to make a point, but this is, this is why it's so important to continually seek God through prayer and daily Bible reading. You cannot be changed spiritually without engaging God in His Word. It is living and active. It will transform you if you do every single day, at least four times a week. That's actually, again, another study, right? Four times a week, they saw a measurable difference in the mental state of people, in relationship status, in the use or less use of, of illicit drugs and alcohol, if people were legitimately in Scripture four times or more a week, that's about when changes start to occur. And men, please don't give me this. I know my Bible stuff. I do too. We can know our Bible and not know the answer. You too, ladies. Think about this. If somebody comes to you and says, hey, I need you to go 10 miles, turn left, hang a right, drive through the roundabout, drive another 50 miles, turn right, turn right again, go through the old mill, stop seven times, and then you're there. 
you're going to be like, I, I need something. Most of us will be like, can you just give me an address? I'll put it in the GPS. Right? What does that do? Step by step. But if they give you a map that you're not familiar with how to read, but they show you both points on it and say, go from here to there, at least you have some direction. The Bible similarly does the same for us in a much better way because it fixes our spiritual condition, our spiritual direction, our spiritual compass, which is sometimes pointing into the world or into ourselves. And that ruins our direction. It's essential. This is what Bible reading does every day. Like Abram, we're not going to fully understand it. We're not. That's okay. It's okay to not understand. But if it's God who ordains our steps, should we not always look to him for direction? We need to continually pray that God would help us understand our way and seek the answer by reading the Bible. Because when you read the Bible and you pray and you say, God, I'm giving this to you, that doesn't mean I'm going to sit still and pretend like magic's going to happen, right? None of us go into the doctor's office and say, I'm just going to sit here, I'm sick, but... Uh, I'm not going to ask for the doctor. We have to read and pray. And when we give it over to God, whatever decision we make is His sovereign will for our life. We've looked to Him, and we can take confidence knowing that whatever happens, we've given it to Him and Him alone. Real biblical men look to God. <clears throat> all right, so after all these things, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. He's going to be the father of a multitude now, still no child. And uh, the lineage of Abraham is supposed to continually uh, progress until it culminates in Jesus Christ, right? G or God told him he was going to be a, a blessing to the families or all nations of the earth. That meant eventually somebody that came from his descendants was going to be the one that we were looking for, the eventual blessed hope, Jesus Christ. God speaks to Abraham in a vision, and this time, though, Abraham asks the question, God, what are you going to do for me? Most of us are like, yeah, God, what are you going to do for me? Dare I say that's modern day Christianity, isn't it? God, I don't know if I like the music. What could you do for me? God, I don't know if they have the right kind of food at the potluck. Here's the difference. Abraham was not asking because he was looking for a church that met his felt needs or sung the right tune. He was asking because God made a promise to him and told him he was going to be a blessing to many nations and have all these descendants, but he's old and still doesn't have a child. So he's saying, God, I understand what you said. You're God, but Lord, what, what are you going to do for me? I have no children. How am I going to be a blessing? He even says one of his servants in his house was going to be his heir. God says, no, 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 no. He makes the promise of Isaac. Scripture says, when God made that promise, and here's the important part, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's the whole point of Jesus Christ. We sin, we're dead spiritually, and in order to be found right before a holy God, we have to be somehow atoned for. And faith in Jesus Christ and what he did makes us righteous before God. It says Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. Basically, Abraham could look forward knowing God's promises and be looking forward to heaven. Even though it was before Christ was born on the earth. And think about how difficult that would be. Think about 
Well, I'm sure most of us know from personal experience how foolish we might look to somebody. Gosh forbid somebody doesn't like us or think we're silly or stupid for believing the Bible. I've been in many arguments with people. You believe that is written by men? I'm like, well, if that's your logic, you can't believe anything you read. Oh, good point. Yeah, I know. Oh, you silly, you can't believe, you, you're dogmatic, bigot, you're racist if you believe that Bible. What? How foolish people look. Isn't that what God said? God uses the foolishness to confound the wise. You might even upset your family. It's hard, isn't it? When your family's like angry with you because maybe they believe something different or they don't like what you believe or they don't like what you say about their life because, you know, they don't believe that. It's hard. Maybe this is a call to Christians in our time as men, and especially biblical men, we need to have unequivocal faith. Zero doubting, zero misunderstanding, a clear and unambiguous faith. We need to know that God alone is God, and that no amount of what happens in this earth is going to change that. And if our faith is not in Him, we've missed the mark. So Abram shows us that real biblical men have faith in God. Faith in God. Abraham left his homeland, his family, his lifestyle to follow God who appeared to him in the midst of all these other self-gratifying gods. And God promised him a son, a legacy. He said, Abraham, I'm going to take care of you. Just believe in me. Believe what I say. <clears throat> and when you don't have faith in God, you tend to doubt. Do we all doubt? I know I doubt sometimes, right? Here's, here's what doubt is. Doubt is Satan or maybe your buddy or your friend or somebody else at work speaking into your ear. And basically, they're all saying the same thing, aren't they? Did God really say? Did God really say you couldn't look, man? Did God really say you couldn't treat your wife that way? Did God really say you had to do that? I mean, it all comes down to the same thing. Did God really say? Yes, he did. You can fill in the blank, because we all could. Abraham had faith in God. He believed that this was the one true God, and this God was telling him the truth. Had to have believed that, or he wouldn't have left. So now Abraham has received this promise from God, and he believes God is who he says he is, and believes that God will do what he says he will do. But the years are passing. No child, right? Over and over. No kids coming. His wife's still barren. There's been no visit from God. Start thinking to yourself, did Abraham dream this up? Did he have a vision from God, or was he having a manic episode? Right? I mean, did God really visit Abraham, or did he just forget to take his medicine? They're tired of waiting. You know the story. Sarah, Abraham's wife, hey, honey, look here. I'm old. You're old. You brought us out here. I left my Manny Petties and HTTV for this. You said there was going to be a son. You said God was going to do this. Where's it at? So, here's my servant, Hagar. Y'all know the rest. Abraham and Hagar break the marriage covenant. She gets pregnant with Ishmael. Abraham messes up big time. Gentlemen, there is nothing wrong with listening to your wife. In fact, Scripture says we ought to heed her counsel. We ought to listen to her. We ought to converse with her, talk with her. Ultimately, though, it comes down to what God says. 
But that doesn't mean you don't include your wife. And that doesn't mean you don't go with her advice sometimes. It just means that you have to weigh everything against the Lord and what he says. In this case, Abraham should not have listened to his wife. It has to be godly counsel. They were trying to secure a blessing apart from God. We do that a lot, don't we? I'm going to secure my financial blessings by working 60 hours a week, abandoning my family. I'm going to secure my, I don't know, you fill in the blank. I'm going to secure my A game by playing golf 50 hours a week. Third thing Abraham shows us is that real biblical men listen to the voice of God. That's not to say you forsake every other voice. That's not what I'm saying. But God's voice ultimately will be the one that guides you. If God said not to look with lust, then don't look with lust. If God said to treat your wife or live with your wife in an understanding manner, then live with her in an understanding manner. If God said to serve in the church, then serve in the church more than once every one or three years. If God said to raise your children in the fear and instruction of the Lord, raise your children in the fear and instruction of the Lord, guys. I know it's hard. I'm not standing here telling you I've got it all sorted out. I'm just saying it takes sacrifice. But with God, all things are possible, and that's what he says to do. One last thing, Abraham, and then we're going to move on. In Genesis 22, 1 through 19, if you've read this, God puts Abraham's faith to the test. Abraham and Sarah, they have Isaac. God says, Abraham, I need you to sacrifice your son, your only son, whom you love. What? No, I don't think that's what he said. That's what most of us would do, right? God, I know Isaac means laughter, but uh, there's nothing funny about this. You're joking, right? No. When God told Abraham to do this, he did it. So the fourth thing he shows us is that real biblical men fear the Lord, fear God. And, and, and church, I'm not saying... <sighs> fear means revere, to hold him up high regard. He is holy. Fear God. Everything comes from him. We make our decisions for that or through him. Sacrifice your only son. I don't think so, God. That's nuts. But Abraham goes. Here's one thing I want us to notice real quick, and I'm trying to move fast. I know that's a relative term for a pastor. Isaac spoke to Abraham's father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac asks a single question that speaks volumes to this relationship of father and son. One question was all it took. Where's the lamb? God, Father, Father, I know we need the fire, and I know we need the wood to make the fire, and we obviously need the knife to make the sacrifice, but where's this lamb we're supposed to be sacrificing? He knew what it looked like to worship the Lord. And it's noteworthy that Isaac would have been considerably younger than most of us, even the teenagers in here. But he knew the process. And that shows us that Abraham taught his child what it meant to fear and worship the Lord. And so the fifth thing he shows us is that real biblical men teach their children Bible. They teach them Bible. Our kids spend 30 to 60 plus hours a week in everything else, secular. 
I'm not knocking your choices here. I'm just saying that if we're not teaching them Bible, one hour a week in youth group or children's church ain't going to get it. That's just the truth. Now, real quick, we're going to look at David and see what we can learn from him about real biblical men. You know, David was the youngest of many. He belonged to the tribe of Judah. Judah was the fourth-born son to Jacob, who was the grandson to Abraham. David was a humbled shepherd boy who took care of his father's sheep, which has some significance. We're going to come back to that in a minute. He, raised, or excuse me, he risked his life to kill the attacking bear and the lion in order to protect the flock entrusted to his care. He always always publicly declared that it was God who provided the strength and success he always experienced. Interestingly, though, David was not, was not only the youngest and smallest in his family, he was the one that was considered unimportant. Because Samuel, the nationally recognized prophet, goes to the house of Jesse, and he's like, hey, I'm looking for the king. God told me to come anoint. Let me see your sons. He's like, here's all my seven best ones. And Samuel's like, mm, no. Divine restraint. Do you have anything else? Big, strong, strapping, good lucky man. Do you have anything else? Uh, I mean, I got David. He's taking care of the sheep. He's, you don't want him. He's small. Samuel, bring David. And he anoints him king, right? But here's the deal. Even though he became king, he continued to serve humbly. He didn't lord it over anybody. He didn't shove his weight around. The first thing David shows us is real biblical men humbly serve others. Why do you say humbly, Pastor? Well, great question. Let's face it. It's human condition. The more prestigious our position, the bigger our bank or the fancier our car, we get into this kind of like, my Bible is bigger than your Bible fight as men. We always want to show our, our medal. It's a mentality. And what happens is it no longer becomes about God. It becomes about what we can do or what we can do better than the other guy. So people really know, I'm the humble servant, right? It's me. It's not that guy. He was only here three times. I was here five, whatever. Humility is complete dependence on God and thinking of others more than yourself. Paul said in Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition and empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard others more important than yourselves. Think about that. David was just anointed as king by this nationally recognized prophet, which was kind of a big deal. And he goes back to tending sheep and humbly serving others. At this point, Saul's the current king, right? He's at war with the Philistines. Every day, twice a day, what happens? Big old bad Goliath steps out, right? Send one of your men. Whoever wins, the other side has to bow down and worship them and serve them always. Right? David goes to take items to his three older brothers who are serving in the war. He's wondering why everybody's cowering down under this uncircumcised Philistine. And he accepts the challenge that Goliath has continually been given the Israelites, which I just said. David goes out to fight Goliath, right? Knocks him out with a stone, chops off his head. It's very clear. David wants him to know that God and God alone is the only true God. And he will deliver the Philistine into David's hand. Seven times, and if you read this narrative in 2 Samuel, seven times David gives attributes to God for deliverance. Seven times. He says that God, it's God's battle. God delivered him from the bear and the lion when tending the sheep, and God will deliver him from the hand of the Philistine. David had no doubt in his mind it was and always will be God that delivers his people from their enemies. 
Because of this, David shows us that real biblical men rely upon the Lord. Number seven. Three more. Bear with me. No matter the circumstance, we're supposed to rely upon the Lord. This is, not, this is not your time to shine. It's not my time to shine. It's God's time to shine when we humbly submit to Him in the power of the Holy Spirit. The only thing you and I can do apart from God is screw up. You think after thousands of years we'd get this right and get it in our brain, but we don't. We, we think, no, this time is different. It's not different. Apart from God, we can do nothing. That's very clear biblical teaching. If you don't rely upon the Lord, you're going to mess up. We will mess up. We say, well, pastor, if she would have just listened to me, pastor, if he would have not said that, done that, went there, blah, 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 blah. I tell my kids, they probably don't like it, but I say, quit being an Adam. Blaming everybody. Stop. Even when you rely upon the Lord, and, and y'all know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway, Jesus promised that it's not going to be all sunshine and rainbows. Sometimes it might be bridge trolls and, I don't know, unicorns. It's not always going to be easy. That's the point. Perseverance. But it doesn't mean that God will not deliver you. He will keep his word and he will be with you. And I, I, do, I, I want to make a quick side note here. I hope you didn't bring any tomatoes, but many times preachers and teachers will relate this historical account of David and Goliath to you and, and say that David is, is you or David is me and, and Goliath is the next giant in our life that we need to slay. Basically, um, that's incorrect. You and I are not David. I don't care what Stephen Furtick, Joel, Steen, or Beth Moore say. We're not David. David is a type. What that means is he points to somebody to come that will do something for us that we can't do ourselves. David is a type of Christ. Goliath represents our sin and our death that we get because of our sin. We cannot destroy it on our own. God said in Genesis 3.15, your seed will crush the head of the serpent. You cut off the head, the body dies. David is a type of Christ that came when nobody else could fight this giant, this sin and death, as Christ did, and slayed it. David is a type of Christ. David was a shepherd boy who took care of his father's flock. This is synonymous, that is the same, to Christ caring for the flock of sheep that the Father has given him. That's us. We were given to Christ by the Father. He gave his life for the sheep because the good shepherd, or without the good shepherd, the sheep will scatter and die. David represents a type of Christ. A type of Christ. Without the shepherd boy David, in our case Christ, to destroy the giant, which is Goliath for David, sin and death for us, or for Christ, our life would be without hope. We would have no hope. We can look back to Abraham and Isaac as the same thing. They're a type that points to Christ and God. Abraham was told to sacrifice his only son, whom he loved. What did God do? Sacrifice his only son, whom he loved. All right, sorry, I'm going to come back from that rabbit trail. But it's important to have a proper understanding of what David and Goliath, real people in real history, ultimately point us to, and that's Jesus Christ and his ability to destroy a sin in our life, not us. And David, of course, rises to national fame, yet he still remains a humble servant who attributes everything to God. He's not a Washington politician, is he? I did that. 
No, he didn't. David unifies the kingdom. He establishes important political, military, and economic alliances that continue to increase the success and advancement of the kingdom under his rule. He continues to lead with godly wisdom and guidance. Even though he conquered much and was extremely successful, he did not take any credit for it. He gave it all to God, acknowledged God in everything, and therefore he shows us real biblical men give credit where credit is due. We do. We should. If you say, man, that was a really great idea, Josh. You should do that again. I say, thanks. She's right over there. She doesn't like it, but sorry. Cut that from the record. Something happens, though, doesn't it, with David? Something, some very difficult times later on. Things start to take a different turn. Sin starts to creep up in his life, doesn't it? We see that David has all but cut God out of his life. He's sitting fat at his house and his throne while everybody else is doing the work for him, fighting the war. Sitting there, having a good time, staring at somebody else's woman, commits adultery, then murder, marries the woman. He really uh, failed to exercise self-restraint and discipline in his domestic affairs. And he, he only repents when he's confronted by Nathan the prophet. He confronts him with his sin. But David, he doesn't shirk back from it. He doesn't say, that ah, wasn't me. Uriah would have been here, it wouldn't have been that way. He acknowledges his guilt and confesses his sin and pleads with God for forgiveness. And he shows us that real biblical men exercise self-restraint and repentance. We don't blame other people. We exercise self-restraint and repentance. And ladies, this goes for you too. I'm just, you know. Even though he repented of his sin, he still had to face the consequences of his sin, didn't he? Oh, if you're familiar with his story, it was horrible. It lasted another ten agonizing years, unlike this sermon. It destroyed his family, his integrity, and his influence. Three very important things. Family, integrity, and influence. If you don't have those, you ain't got much. I don't care how big a bank account you got. Ammon, one of David's sons, commits some egregious sins with one of his sisters. And then Absalom, one of David's other sons, kills that son for what he did. Absalom flees because David has disfavor with him for killing his other son. And Absalom then takes advantage of his royal ties and he seeks a following. He takes advantage of the, the division in the family, uses it to his advantage to get a following. He engages in mutiny, essentially, and proclaims that he's the king. All throughout Israel, he leads a rebellion against his own father. And this causes David to flee to Jerusalem. Absalom, if you like said it familiar, is eventually killed trying to flee battle. And upon David's return, the nation is in upheaval. It's shambles. There's alliances everywhere. Political alliances... Social economical alliances, you're right, I'm wrong alliances, mask, no mask alliances. He comes back and there's all this stuff going on. It took him many years to right the horrible wrongs that were or happened on account of his sin. But he never shrunk away from it. Real biblical men accept responsibility and consequences for their sin. There's nothing worse than dealing with a bunch of blaming, shifting atoms. 
Lord, it was the woman you gave to be with me. In fact, God, it sounds a lot like your fault because you gave her to me. It was our fault. It's our fault. The only way we see real biblical men make a comeback and not die off is through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I do only those things that please the Father. Real biblical men look to God for direction. Jesus said, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Real biblical men have faith in God. Jesus said many times, he who has an ear, let him hear. Real biblical men listen to the voice of God. Jesus taught the fear of God when he said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is unable to destroy both soul and body in hell. Real biblical men fear and worship the Lord only. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. How can children come to Jesus if they're not brought up in the tutelage of their parents? Real biblical men teach their children Bible. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Real biblical men serve humbly, rely upon the Lord, and give credit where credit is due. Real biblical men exercise self-restraint and repentance. And real biblical men accept responsibility and consequences for their sin. And the only way this can be done is through what Jesus said in Matthew 20. Or 19. With people, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. If we do not focus on and fix the problem at the root, church, and I'm just going to say this and then I'll be done, but we can make laws, we can, we can do all the things all day long, but if we don't share the gospel, which is the only thing that changes the heart, the foundation of the issue, the root of the issue, these symptoms will keep coming back. That's what we ought to focus on. The foundation. You know how the secular world destroys the church? They focus on the foundation. What's the foundation? God's word. We're out there attacking all these other sins, and it's like balloons they're shooting off when their foundation is not being attacked at all. If you don't attack the foundation and fix the problem, you're going to continue to bleed out and die. That's just the way it is. We have to focus on fixing the root issue or we watch the family, the church, and society die a slow, agonizing death. And I don't want that to happen, church. I know Jesus Christ said he'll build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail, but that requires us doing something about it. As we go to the Lord in prayer, let's pray for real, real biblical men to make a comeback. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your grace and your mercy and letting me stand before um, your church and, and proclaim your word. God, I just pray that, Lord, if we're convicted, know that it's the Holy Spirit convicting us and it's not offense. Father, I pray in my own life that you would forgive me where I've failed you and continually fail you, Father, and that you would continue to mold me and shape me into the real biblical man that you would have me to be, Lord. I thank you for the opportunity to stand before the congregation and to pour out my heart with them. I pray, Father, for them as they go forth, that they would continue to look to you for direction and that they would continue to rely upon you and, and do all the things, Lord, that you, you ask us to do. Father, we pray now that the rest of this day will be to your glory and honor. And thank you for everything, God, everything you do for us. For it's in the most holy and precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, church, I think we're still... Um,